be in the book of Revelation this morning. Perhaps not what you were expecting on an Easter Sunday morning to be in the book of Revelation, but we are. We're going to be in Revelation and in the first chapter, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 and 18. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? This is John's vision, John the Apostle, John the one whom Jesus loved. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray again. Dear gracious God, as we open your word to seek its message for us this morning, as we open your word and study it to get to know you better, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. What? He's preaching from Revelation? That's this isn't what I signed up for. I mean, I got up and I got dressed and I came to church. I don't really want to be here. Because there's other stuff to do today. And he's preaching from Revelation? I don't know about that. You're expecting to hear about the resurrection, right? You're expecting to hear about how on that morning of the third day after the Sabbath, the ladies went to the tomb carrying the spices that they had prepared to embalm Jesus' body. And that when they got there, they found that the tomb was open and empty, that the angels came and spoke to them, and that these women were the first to carry the news of Jesus' resurrection. They carried them all the way back to the disciples. If we were reading the version from John, we have the single most passive-aggressive section of Scripture, where John describes Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved running to the tomb. Remember, of course, that is John. And John's got to put in there that he beat Peter to the tomb. It is one of those details that is only there because we've argued about this for 40 years, and Peter, I beat you. And I'm writing the book, so I get to tell it that way. That's what you're expecting. That's what you're expecting. And I understand it. But here's the thing. The resurrection is found throughout Scripture. The resurrection is found in the Old Testament and in the New. Because all of Scripture points to Jesus and His work. And so we can turn to Revelation and we can see the resurrection there. You know, one of the things that makes Christianity unique and the claims of Christianity unique among the world's religions is that they claim 
to be historical. If you read the Vedas of Hinduism, there are very few, if any, who would tell you that those are stories that happened in history. If you read other texts of other religions, there are very few that would claim that these were events that happened in history and then in their own text provide the corroborating evidence to show that these are events in history. And yet this is the claim of Christianity. I mentioned a while ago, you may have caught it. Some of you have heard me talk about this this week. There is discussion among scholars as to when exactly, what year it was that the crucifixion and the resurrection took place. The two most likely candidates are the year 30 and the year 33. I happen to think that the evidence for 33 is stronger than the evidence for 30, which means that the crucifixion and the resurrection happened 1,989 years ago. Which means that in 11 years, it's going to be 2,000 years. I hope that that Y2K is more exciting than the, the other one. See, here's the, one of the interesting things. When Paul writes in some of his letters about the resurrection, he says, don't take my word for it. There are all of these other witnesses. Go and ask them. Did you know that there are more attestations about the existence of Jesus and his death and resurrection than there are of Alexander the Great? And I don't just mean from Scripture. Extra Scripture, references outside of Scripture. There are more references to Jesus, his death, and resurrection than Alexander the Great. And yet no one's running around telling us that Alexander the Great didn't exist, right? Or that he didn't do the things that we know that he did. And yet all the time we have this conversation about Jesus. There are more documents of Scripture, ancient documents of Scripture written down, than there are copies of the Iliad and the Odyssey. We know more about Scripture and how Scripture was written and when it was written and who wrote it than we do about the Iliad and the Odyssey. And yet no one ever sits there and says, well, we shouldn't pay attention to the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's not real. It's made up. It's a fabrication. Someone came along with thousands of years later and made up. And yet people make that claim about Scripture. And yet we know more about Scripture than we do about Homer. Because Christianity... Our faith is rooted in a time and in place and in an event. John was present at the crucifixion. He was the only, as far as we know, the only one of Jesus' male disciples who was present. And we know he was present because in his gospel, he says that from the cross... Jesus told him to take care of his mother, Jesus' mother. And told Mary that John was now her son. John had known Jesus. It had been probably about 60 years from the time John saw Jesus until he was on the Isle of Patmos and had the vision that we read this morning. 
And Jesus shows up. Imagine that. Have any of you had someone in your life that you loved dearly and that you haven't seen for 60 years? Maybe they're not, maybe they're not dead. But wouldn't you be a little excited if they showed up? How many of us, upon seeing a friend that had been gone for 60 years, would fall down as if dead? I don't know about you, that, that wouldn't be my, my go-to response, right? A couple of months ago, we went up to, to Williamsburg, actually around Christmas time, we went up to Williamsburg, and I got to see some of my fraternity brothers who, like, randomly, three of us ended up in, even though we all went to college in Mississippi, we ended up in, in Williamsburg. And I met them, and it had been like a year and a half since I had seen Matt Black. And let me tell you, I didn't, I didn't fall down as if I was dead. We, we, we ran across the restaurant and gave each other giant bear hugs. Because that's what you do, right, when you haven't seen somebody in a long time. But that's not what John does. He sees Jesus. And he tells us that he fell at his feet as if he was a dead man. Now, this really shouldn't surprise us all that much because this is the common response when someone in Scripture encounters the presence of God. Sometimes they encounter that presence of God in the person of an angel. Sometimes they encounter the presence of God as Moses did in a burning bush or in some other form of God's presence and God's glory. At the transfiguration, they fell and worshipped him as they saw Jesus in his glory. See, this, this falling down as if dead, this is, this is the response to being in the presence of the risen and glorified Jesus. It was overwhelming to John. It totally overwhelmed him, and he fell as if he was dead. He had seen Jesus. He had seen Jesus humiliated. He had seen Jesus stripped. He had seen Jesus beaten. He had seen Jesus spit on. He had seen the guards shove the crown of thorns onto his head. He had seen Jesus humiliated. But now he was seeing Jesus glorified. Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Jesus in his full glory. You know, falling to our knees, falling as if dead, is the natural reaction in the face of epiphany in the face of encounter with God. In Revelation, we see John do this three other times. We also see John fall six other times in worship in Revelation. Because see, what happens when we are in the presence of God's glory, it should drive out all fleshly desires in us. The, the things in us that separate us from God, the things in us that, that make us feel as if we can stand on our own two feet should be driven out from us. And an encounter with the risen God should stir up in us 
a desire to be full of worship and to see that which is unholy in our own lives die. John saw him and he fell at his feet as a dead man. And then Jesus does this really interesting thing. He reaches out with his right hand and he lays his right hand on him and he, and he pulls him up. And he says, do not be afraid. Why should you not be afraid? Because I am the first and the last. First and last. Earlier, uh, back in verse 8, we had seen God say that He was the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. See, God is eternal. John's making two points. He's using the same language to describe Jesus and pointing out Jesus' divinity, but he's also describing the eternality of God, the total sovereignty of God. There is not one thing, not in the beginning and not in the end, over which God does not have control, over which God does not have reign, over which God does not have sovereignty. Not one thing. Because Jesus is both the origin of and the goal of all of history. From the moment God spoke, creation was in motion toward Jesus. And from the time that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, all of history has been shaped and moving away from that singular moment. Moving towards the fullness of the glorification of Christ. And afterwards, totally shaped by it. You can see, Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection are not God's plan B. I think sometimes we think about it that way, right? Because God created everything and it was good and there was a garden and then sin entered the world and then so God had to like scramble and come up with plan B. But that's not the case. I might have to scramble and come up with a plan B on a semi-regular basis. But Jesus was always God's plan A. That was always the point. From the moment God said, let there be light, until the moment Jesus says, it is finished, that was the plan. John tells us in the beginning of his Gospel that Jesus was present from the very foundations of the earth. He was the first and the last. He also was a dead that is now alive. This is the mystery of our faith. That Jesus was dead and is now alive. Paul tells us that if the resurrection is not true, then the whole of our faith is false. See, this is This is the problem, right? I think this is the sticking point. There are a lot of people who will look to Jesus and say, he's a great guy, he was a holy guy, he was a good teacher, he's great, but but they get stuck on the resurrection, right? Because dead people don't come back to life. If somebody walked through that back door this morning that we all knew had died three days ago, we would be a little concerned, wouldn't we? 
We would think that we had suddenly entered an ongoing TV show with many spinoffs that doesn't ever seem to die, just like many of the villains in the show. Because, because even us, right, even on this side of resurrection, we are so sure of the material world and the way the world works that people don't come back from the dead. But here's the thing. The resurrection is not figurative. It's not metaphor. It's not, and the faith lived on into the disciples after Jesus. And there's some that will try and tell you that. It's history. And it defines everything. And it changes everything. This proclamation that Jesus was dead and is alive, it is. It's the origin and the goal of history. It's the the hinge of history. Everything in the world depends on it. There is not one thing that you can do in your life that does not depend upon the fact that Jesus was dead and is now alive. You want to get up in the morning and get to the car and go to work? You can. Because Jesus was dead and is now alive. You want to, you want to celebrate I'm about to break out into a Gaither song here in a second. You want to celebrate a newborn baby? You can. Because Jesus was dead and is now alive. You want to live not in fear and trembling and in anxiety? You can, because Jesus was dead and is now alive. Everything in our life is dependent on this one truth. Because it changes everything. We talk about Jesus being the hinge of history. What is a hinge, right? A hinge is the point around which everything else moves. Everything else moves around the proclamation that Jesus was dead and is now alive. Jesus continues there and he says, I am alive forever and ever. And what? I hold the keys of death and Hades. I want to clarify something here. And this was something that I actually didn't really fully have my head wrapped around until recently. We see Hades a lot in Scripture. And sometimes Hades has been translated in the past in other older translations. Hades has been, has been translated as hell. And so we think of, of Hades as what we think of as hell, right? The, the, the place where, the pit into which the devil and the demons and those who serve him will be thrown in the fullness of time, right? We know hell. But that's not what Hades means. You see it often, you see these two tied together, death and Hades. See, there were, there were two ideas, there were two words, and we think about this and we know that Jesus uses both of these words. Jesus uses the word Sheol, we've heard that word, and Jesus uses the word Gehenna. Sheol is the place where people went when they died. It was sort of the the holding place for the dead. That was the idea. Gehenna was the place where people went 
to be tormented. There's two different places. So we just have that clear. We're talking about death and Hades. We're not talking about hell. We're talking about Sheol. But he says that he has the keys of death and Hades. That's kind of a weird expression. And even in English, it's not terribly clear. And in Greek, it's even less clear. If you ever want to be really confused, try and learn Greek prepositions. It's awful. But, but in Greek, it, it's not clear as to whether or not it means it's the keys to death in Hades, as if they are places, or if it's the keys that belong to death in Hades, as if they are personified. And if we think about Greek uh, mythology, right, and we know about Hades, Hades, who, he, was, he was both a place and the god of that place, right? Maybe you don't know your Greek mythology, just think back to Disney's Hercules, So, is it, is it the keys to unlock or the key, these places or the keys belonging to these places? It's not clear. I think it's both. I think that when John writes it this way, he's saying these are places that Jesus holds the power over, but these are also these sinful, demonic forces that Jesus has control of. Because Jesus has conquered death and Hades. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in control. This will be the great part of Christ's glory forever. That He died and that He lives. And that therefore the keys to eternal life and eternal death are in His hands. See, death did not snatch Jesus. We have this idea that somehow Jesus was on the cross and death snuck up on him and death snatched him away. Death did not snatch Jesus. Jesus snatched death. He was not serving death. Death served his plans. Death was Jesus' servant. This is the basis of his glory. That he made death serve Him. That the kingdom of God is here. That He holds the keys to death and Hades. That He is the first and the last, the living one who is alive and is, who is dead and is now alive. made even death. There are two things in life that are inevitable. What are those two things? Death and what we're all going to have to do tomorrow. Took this inevitability, this thing that we all face, this thing that we are terrified of, this thing that causes us to stay awake in the night and worry, this thing that causes us to spend Thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. He took this thing called death and he says, no. You have no power here. 
You have no control here. I do not serve you. You, death, you serve me, and you serve my ends and my purposes. Because I am the Lord Jesus Christ, the first and the last. Life can come at you quick, can it? We know that. We know that there's stuff in life that's not quite right. We know that. We all know that. We know that intuitively. Everybody knows that there's something not quite right. That things are supposed to have a plan. And that we've gone off the rails. We had a plan. God had a perfect plan and a perfect design. And it's gone off the rails. Because of the the corruption that exists in the human heart. The sin that rests there. I shared a quote this week. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We all do it. We all rebel. And it brings us to a place of brokenness where things feel out of control and things are just going off in a million different directions and there are all these different ways that we try and grab hold, right? And keep hold. Because we, we think that we need to hold on to those keys of death and Hades. We think that we need to be the ones in control and the ones in power. And we keep trying to figure it out and we keep failing. Some of you may have had that experience in life. But here's the thing. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, came. He lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. And because of that, and if you believe and have faith and trust in that, he will give you the freedom to recover and pursue the design that God has for your life. Because Jesus can do that. Because he is the first and the last. The living one who is dead and is now alive. And he, not anyone else, he holds the power and the keys to death and Hades. Because he, not you, not me, not anybody else, he is in control. That is the resurrection. That is what the resurrection shows us. That is what the resurrection does for us. That is what the resurrection is. A proclamation of God's sovereignty over everything. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. Proud victor over the dark domain who lives forever to reign. Up from the grave he arose. That will be our closing hymn this morning. It's going to be hymn number 160. Will you stand with me as we sing once more 
together to God's glory.